0: Shedding light on the inner life of the soul. First off, thank you yes. everybody for taking yes. out of your yes. busy schedules to come here. Khazal say Hoisten Befila Achsanya that you open up in the sake of those who have opened their doors, in the host, in the name of the host. And the way that this can typically be read is that when a person speaks in someone else's house, you speak about the person who opened their house to you. But I think that when Chazal says, <laughs> Chazal is saying mida k'neged mida. What the achsanya did, what the host has done is open their home. And so too, the speaker who's speaking in the home has to open themselves up as well. So I know Ushi well enough by now to know that he doesn't want me to speak about him. Ushi, so thank you. Thank you. But because Ushi is opening his home. I should be Zoha to open myself to say words of Torah. In the Zohar HaKadosh, in the Holy Zohar, before Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai would teach any Torah, the Zohar would say, Pasach Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon opened up. Now, the typical way of interpreting that is that he opened his mouth and he began to speak. But what it really means, according to the Mefarshim, is that when Rabbi Shimon began to speak Torah, he davened to Hashem that he should allow himself to be open enough to say words that come from a place of vulnerability. That there's Torah that comes from a place of strength, where a person pretends that they have something to offer to the audience, as if they know something that the audience doesn't know. And they're conveying information, and everyone else has to listen to the information. <coughs> and then there's teaching that emanates from within the core of an individual. Like the Piazzat Tzner Rebbe, Hashem Domo, writes in the end of his diary, "Sav one of the most painful, beautiful documents that we have in our library. Written from his years of wrath in the years of Warsaw, the Piazzat Rebbe, towards the end of his life, said that he had lost hope in people listening to his teachings. <coughs> The Piyazat Rebbe said, these people are so broken that they have no space to listen to words of Torah. But instead of giving up hope and speaking, the Piyazat Rebbe said, I'm going to open up the windows. I'm going to speak to the world. And anybody who wants to eavesdrop is going to eavesdrop. Rabbi Nachman did something similar when he decided to stop teaching Torah and start telling stories at the end of his life. So, b'schus the achsanya, Besrus the host who has opened their home. My tefillah for myself is that I should open myself to say words that I need to hear. And anybody who's interested in listening will listen in. When we find ourselves... I'm sorry, Besrus my father and everybody else. When we talk about elul, when we talk about the hopes and the aspirations and the dreams that we have for ourselves, come Elul, we talk about our desire to become better, to be more than we are at the moment, to fulfill, quote unquote, more of our potential than we are fulfilling at this moment. And a person can be suffused with a sense of hopefulness and exuberance in that we're embracing a new year and it's time to take on more for ourselves. But when a person looks at the function of the calendar, Elul is not the beginning of the year. Elul is the end of the year. Elul is the death of the year. Comes Elul, comes the culmination of all of the hopes and the dreams that we had for ourselves, the previous Tishrei. All of us, come Rosh Hashanah, come Aseret come Yom Kippur, come Shmini we make promises to ourselves. We promise ourselves that we're going to be better in whatever way we want to be better in. We promise ourselves that we're going to try harder in whatever area we want to try harder in. We promise ourselves that we're going to stop engaging in whatever we want to stop engaging in. Each person, according to the pain and their subjective experience in this world, is a creature of Hashem Misbarach. And comes Elul, aside from the exuberance and the excitement over new beginnings... If a person is honest with themselves, there's also a mourning of the fact that this year has died. What we hoped for our last Tishrei very often doesn't culminate in actuality. The promises that we make to Hashem, the promises that we make to ourselves, the promises we make to our spouses and our families and the other people we engage with, very often fall short of what we wanted them to be. And come Elul... It's very easy for a person to lose hope in themselves. For a person to feel that I have not lived up to what I promised myself. And there's a sense of death, of things dying that we associate with Elul. The death of dreams, the death of hopes, the death of promises that we made to ourselves. And make no mistake about it, the death of a dream is no less painful than the death of a loved one. It's just different. But when we make promises to ourselves that we can't keep, there's a sense of loss, there's a sense of failure, there's a sense of vulnerability. Now our tzaddikim point out that Elul, there's almost an obsession about finding acronyms for the word Elul, And the reason for that, Rav Moshe Wolfson and other tzaddikim talk about the fact that Elul is all about new beginnings. And acronyms, or roshe tevot, is about looking at the first letter. So, to find an allusion to something in the first letter is the willingness for a person to find hope in the beginning. To see that first letter and say, wow, there's something new here. One of the most famous acronyms, the Roshay Tevos for Elul, and the Balaturim already brings this down, is Anna Liado Vesamta Lo, Aleph Lamid Vav Lamid, the Pusuk associated with Irham Mikla, the cities of refuge where an accidental killer needs to run to in order to be protected from the Goel Hadam, from those who are legally allowed to destroy them. And the way Hasidus, and as well as the Vilna understands this idea is that it's not only the accidental murderer who has killed someone accidentally who needs to run to the miklat, but all of us are guilty of accidentally killing things. We have all accidentally killed dreams of ourselves. We have all accidentally killed hopes that we had for ourselves. We have all accidentally not lived up to what we wanted to live up to. And because we've accidentally killed off these hopes that we've had for ourselves, we're liable. There are people chasing us, there's a sense of being chased, there's a sense of not being okay, of being uncomfortable. And come Elul, what we find is an Ir Miklat. Elul is the time that God has created for us where we can run to and say, in spite of the fact that I have killed my dreams accidentally, in spite of the fact that I have accidentally been unable to live up to that which I want to live up to, there is a space carved out that I can run to. So comes the death of the year, comes the culmination of our hopes, We confront this paradoxical sense that on the one hand, I have failed what I promised myself last year. I have not lived up to what I wanted to live up to. And on the other hand, there's a 13th hour offering of hope that comes Elul, comes the time where we find ourselves in a city of refuge where we are protected in spite of our guilt. Where in spite of the fact that we are responsible and we are accountable, we're able to say to ourselves that it is not our fault that we have not lived up to what we wanted to live up to. And what I want to talk about tonight is very simply, how do we deal with those promises that we made to ourselves in the past? How do we deal with those failures? How do we deal with that vulnerability that abides within each and every one of us, within our own hearts, sometimes too difficult to express to anybody else? How do we deal with the fact that we have not been able to accomplish what we want to accomplish? How do we deal with the fact that we have not been able to become what we want to become? <coughs> and what we're going to discuss tonight, Ezra Hashem, Beslus Ushi, who has opened himself up to all of us, and in turn I'm going to try and open myself up, is the fact that there is always a remainder. That which we hope for. That which we desire so desperately, so painfully. And lev yodeh maras nafshel. However many people are here is however many worlds there exist. Each and every person in this room right now experiences their own sense of failure. Their own sense of vulnerability in the face of not living up to what they wanted to live up to. The failed promises, the inability to change the behaviors we wanted to change, or to adapt to the new attitudes we want to live up to. Each and every one of us experiences that in our own particular way. No individual after this class, if my words mean anything, can turn to the other person and say, wow, we understood that sheer in the same exact way. Because each and every one of us have our own ideals, our own desires, our own hopes of what a good life looks like. And each and every one of us have failed on a certain level According to what our standards are and so each and every person needs to understand that according to our own level (coughs) According to our own heart. We experience these ideas in our own particular subjective way The secret of Elul the secret of what our Svarim HaKadoshim what our Tzadikim are teaching us about Elul is the fact that even though we have failed to live up to what we promised ourselves even though we've been incapable of following through with what we want to follow through with, all is not lost. And hopelessness does not exist. Ein shumyeh ba'olam klal. And even though we haven't been able to live up to what we want to live up to, there still exists the possibility of grabbing hold of our deepest desires from last year and drawing them into the new year. And the way that we can be mitmoded. Mitmodeid is a Hebrew word that I love almost more than any other word. It means to confront. In Alcoholics Anonymous, in the literature of recovery, the way they phrase it is to look unflinchingly at ourselves. The willingness to look at ourselves without any recourse to the excuses or the ideas that we apply to why we're okay. But really the willingness to be vulnerable in the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be naked in the face of God without any excuse. Each and every one of us have our own feelings of failure and what Elul comes to teach us is that each and every one of us also have our own space where we can find hope again. Now, the concept that is going to give us hope tonight is the concept that we're going to refer to in Hebrew as a reshimu, as a trace, or a residual trace. There is a certain spiritual law that comes down to us first and foremost in Chazal. This is applied to certain halachic situations. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai brings it down in the Zohar as well, which we're going to see. But it was really the Arizal who made a fundamental law out of it, almost a spiritual law. And what the Arizal teaches us, and anybody wants to know the Makoros, I'm more than happy to share afterwards... But the Arizal teaches us a fundamental law of spirituality. When something spiritual or good takes place, and then it moves away or we lose it, that is not the end of the story. Because any spirituality, any goodness that takes place within ourselves, within other people, or within the world, leaves an irreducible trace. A trace that cannot be erased there is always going to be a residue that remains in the absence of spirituality. And that no matter what we do or no matter what we lose, spirituality and Kedusha will leave an impalpable trace within our neshamos or within our minds. That even when we lose our dreams, even when we lose our hopes, even when we lose that which we wanted to accomplish, there is still a Roshem, there is still a trace that exists and abides infinitely within each and every one of our Neshamos. So that when we look at the promises that we made, when we look at the swears that we took to be better, or to feel better, or to be kinder, or to be more authentic in our lives, even though we haven't lived up to it, the simple fact that we thought it, the simple fact that we felt it, The simple fact that we wanted it in a real way means that it leaves a mark that can never be erased. And it's that Roshem, it's that trace, it's that residual presence of things that were present and now are gone that gives us hope of recovering what was lost. So that by the end of the shir, all of the promises and all of the hopes and all of the dreams that we have spoken about for ourselves, the previous Rosh Hashanah and the previous Aser Simechuva and the previous Yom Kippur, in spite of the fact that we've lost it, we will be armed with the belief that even though it's gone, it's still present. It's present in a hidden way, in an unconscious way, indelibly marked within each and every one of our souls and it can never be erased. And that's what I want to discuss tonight. The, the idea of the trace. The idea of the Roshem. Now the first place that we learn about this Roshem is from the Arizal. Rav Yitzchak Luria, whose merit should protect us from now until the end of history. I don't need to speak about why the Arizal is a fundamental source. Anybody who's interested in sources for that, I'm more than happy to discuss afterwards. But the Arizal teaches us countless places in his famous sefer, Eitzchayim, the Tree of Life. And the title of the Arizal's book is called The Tree of Life for a reason. It wasn't just a popular title. What the Arizal, what Kabbalah, what Chassidus, what the Vilna Gon was coming to teach us is how to taste the Tree of Life. We failed. We ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Comes along the Arizal and he says, I'm going to teach you how to eat from the Tree of Life in the world of brokenness. And the Arizal teaches us that any Kedusha that rests anywhere <laughs> leaves an indelible trace that cannot be erased. It leaves a Roshan. Any time that we think a thought of Kedusha or holiness, its presence lasts eternally. And no matter what we do, we cannot scrub it away, we cannot get rid of it. And the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato, builds his entire philosophy on this. That the entire purpose of history for the Ramchal is to find those traces, to find those memories, to find those places of forgetfulness, where we once had dreams and we once had hope for ourselves, and they're now gone and we've lost hope in them. The Ramchal comes along and says that no matter what you have forgotten, no matter how far you have fallen, your dreams and your hopes and your spiritual promises that you've made to yourself still exist. They still abide. They're still present and they're still accessible to you. Now, Rav Kakoin HaKohen Meleblin says something incredible. Rav Kakoin HaKohen Meleblin says that when a person looks at the world or themselves or other people, very often our reaction is one of hopelessness, is one that is born out of the feeling that the things that I have promised myself, the things that I have promised other people, have not come to culmination, have not manifested. And Rav kakohen Cohen Meliblin says something incredible. He says that when a person finds themselves in a world where their dreams and their spiritual hopes or their idealism is no longer apparent, there's two options in front of them we can either lose hope, we can say that the hopes and the promises that I made for myself were not real, and they're lost, and because I haven't lived up to them, they're meaningless. Or a person can look at the fact that even though I haven't been capable of living up to what I want to live up to, the fact that I'm bothered by the fact that I haven't lived up to what I want to live up to is still an affirmation of the fact that there's something that I want to live up to. Now, parenthetically, Rav Kakoin Me Leblin has come to the Jewish people in the 19th century at a time where Jews were losing hope, and he came for a specific reason, saying, you can't lose hope. He was almost the second iteration of Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who came to say two things. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov came to say, and again, we're coming to the holiday of Rabbi Nachman. Rosh Hashanah is Rabbi Nachman's. sorry if that offends anybody. Historically, we've seen it become true. 70,000, 80,000 people go there. Rabbi Nachman said two things. Rabbi Nachman said, it's forbidden for a person to lose hope in themselves. And he also said something else. He said (laughs) that there's no such thing as losing hope. So, on the one hand, it's forbidden to lose hope implies that there's a certain sense of hopelessness that exists within the world, and that's almost reasonable, as if a person can reach a place where they're hopeless. But Rabbi Nachman says it's usher. There's a prohibition of admitting to it. It exists, but it's prohibited. And then Rabbi Nachman says something else. Rabbi Nachman says, Ein There's no such thing as losing hope. As if to say that there's two dinim, in the spirit of Rabbi Chaim Brisker, or Chaim Soloveitchik the Brisker of, where he says that there's svei in everything, there's two ways of looking at everything. On the one hand, it's usher to give up hope. It's forbidden to give up hope. Hopelessness exists, but it's usher. But then there's a deeper teaching which says that even when you lose hope, even when a person reaches a place in their mind where there's no more hope for themselves, to live up to the aspirations that they had for themselves, Even then, there's no such thing as hopelessness. So even when you fall into the prohibition of giving up hope, Rabbi Nachman comes and says, Aha, guess what? There's no such thing as giving up hope. And even here, in the pocket of hopelessness, in that strange space that all of us find ourselves in, in our own particular ways, where we feel hopeless about certain things, Rabbi Nachman comes and says, there's no such thing as giving up hope. That even when you lose hope, there's still hope within loss of hope that there always remains an irreducible trace, a reshimu, something that exists that cannot be erased. And Rav Sada teaches us how to find God in that. He says, even in your loss of hope, even in the loss of your dreams, even at the death of the year, come Elul time, where we find ourselves in an Ir miklat because we've killed our dreams accidentally, Rav Sada comes along and teaches us a fundamental teaching. Now, Deliberately, I'm going to read from the Hebrew from this, because the words of our tzaddikim convey a certain nuance that nobody, no matter how powerful they are, can possibly convey. And this is a teaching from Rav Tzaddik Me Meleblin, from a sefer called Lekutei Ma'amarim, And he writes as follows. He says, Rakshetzim besochol gam gamkem ro'shem ze." When a person looks at a world that is broken, when a person looks at a world that is devoid of hope, when a person looks at themselves as if they have been untrue to their hopes and their dreams, there still exists within that concealment a trace of their previous dreams. A Roshem, an irreducible trace that can't be erased. Shenikar shene'elam mehem or Hashem that it is abundantly clear to the individual at that moment that God is not present. So Rav Tzaddok is teaching us something here. He says that it's not only when you find God that God is present, but it's even when you can not find God. The fact that you feel that God is absent from your life, the fact that you feel that spirituality is absent from what you want to do, that is enough of a proof that God exists. The fact that you're bothered by the fact that you couldn't live up to your promises is enough of a proof that your promises still speak to the core of your soul. That it's clear and apparent that the godly light is removed from this experience. And Rav Tzadok says something that only Rav Tzadok could say. This recognition, this awareness of the absence of God in our lives, This awareness of the failure of our promises is the greatest proof that we can possibly have to the truth of our promises. Because if my promises weren't real, if the hopes that I had for myself weren't real, I wouldn't be bothered by the fact that they haven't come to culmination. The fact that I am bothered, the fact that I am anxious, the fact that I am (laughs) zbrochen, and broken-hearted over the fact that I have not been able to live up to my ideals, is the truest stamp that my ideals speak to the deepest part of myself, because if they didn't mean anything, they wouldn't bother me. And Rav Sado continues and he says, <laughs> Because after the fact that a person comes to realize that God is absent from their promises, that God is not found in that space that we feel anxious in, in Elul, or We already come to the realization that there's a light of Hashem that should be present here. Because if there was no light of God, I wouldn't be bothered by the absence of the light of God. The fact that I am bothered and anxious and upset and resentful because I haven't lived up to my promises is the truest proof that my promises speak to the core of who I am. V'zehu ha or Hashem And this is the trace in our lives that God has implanted. Even after God, so to speak, removes himself from our lives, the irreducible trace remains. And that irreducible trace is what reminds us that God is present. And how do we experience this hiddenness? How do we experience this concealment? Rav Sadok says something remarkable that... Not even the most modern or postmodern psychologist or philosopher can express. Rav Sadok says, How do we know that God is absent? By dint of the fact that our hearts are bothered over the fact that God is not present in our lives. When we put our head on the pillow at the end of the day, when we're bothered, whether it's interpersonal or between us and God, or more importantly, between us and ourselves that bother, that discomfort, that anxiety that is so deeply Jewish in its core speaks to the fact that God is still present in our life. He's reminding us that we are uncomfortable, that we haven't brought him into our lives yet. That through the discomfort of God not being present in our lives, we come to realize that Hashem is still present in our lives by dint of the fact that we're bothered. So for Rav Tzadok, this rishimu, this irreducible trace that cannot be erased no matter what we try and do is the biggest proof that the promises that we promised ourselves last year still exist within us and that the things that we feel we have lost because time has swallowed them up or killed them off are still present and available for us to engage in. The Vilna writes something incredible. In the end of his parish on Safar Ditsni in the end of his parish on one of the more complex areas in the Zohar HaKadosh, the Book of Concealment, or the Book of Modesty, there are Likutim, there are collected teachings from the Groh. And the Groh writes something incredible. The Grah writes that you need to stop worrying about dying. You need to stop worrying about your dreams dying. You need to stop worrying about not living up to your ideals because you're already dead. The Vilna says that once the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, the Jewish people died. Once we were sent out into Golis, that was our burial. Once the Goyim tried to attack us, that was the Rima of Those were the worms and the bugs that eat away at the dead individual. And what we are at this point in history, says the Vilna and he was talking more than 200 years ago, is the Kusta de Chiyusa, that irreducible source of life that exists within each and every Jew, even though they have died already. So according to the Vilna we're already dead. We've already accepted the fact that our dreams and our aspirations and our idealism has died, and that we are the fact that the Jewish people live on beyond death. This is a teaching that takes on fundamental proportions once you take the Shoah into consideration. And the Vilnagon says that what we are as the Jewish people at this point in history is that irreducible trace, that irreducible source of life that abides within the bones, in the kever, after everything has been destroyed, that promises T'chiyas HaMesen. The Etsem HaLuz, that Luz bone. That irreducible bone that the Mishnah bruer brings down in the Hilchos Malavamalka, Malka, that there is a bone in each and every Jew. That exists even beyond death, and that when we eat Malavamalka Malka, and this is for Ushi because Ushi asked me a question of, about Malavamalka Malka, that when Shabbos dies, when we find ourselves at Havdullah, we're dead. When you read the Mishnah bruer it's clear. That smelling the besamim is to give us life again because we've died, we've lost our neshama Yesera. That comes malavamanka. What we're feeding is our luz bone. The luz is that irreducible part of the self that remains even after the loss of hope. The fact that Rabbi Nachman says even when you lose hope, there is still hope, and this takes on halachic proportions. Unfortunately, historically speaking, there have been times where Jewish bodies cannot be found where Jewish bodies cannot be identified, and there's no need to go into the specifics of those situations. But there are poskim, halachic poskim, who say that you can still bury the ashes of a Jewish individual because we believe deeply that according to Chazal, there is an irreducible, unbreakable part of the Jewish body, the etzem haluz, this part of ourselves that cannot be killed even by death. And by the b'lava malka, we come to feed that we come to say that even though Shabbos is gone, even though my dreams are gone, even though my hopes for myself are gone, I still continue to hope. Because the fact that I'm bothered that I have not been capable of living up to my dreams is enough of a truth that my dreams still exist. Rav Hutner, in my Merchav, and Maim Rechof in, in the maamar on Rosh Hashanah begins a discussion about this concept of the Rishimu. He asks a fundamental question. And anybody, I know that there are a lot of people who doubt them by the Red Shul, which means that you're students of Rabbi Feitman, which means that you've been exposed to deep teachings from Rav Huttner, something that is unusual in this world. But if a person has been capable of being exposed to the light that Rav Huttner was coming to bring into the world... Rav expresses in an incredible way that the entire concept of Rosh Hashanah, the the entire concept of the shofar, the main mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, is indelibly tied up with this concept of the Roshem. That comes Rosh Hashanah, we've all died, we've all lost hope in our dreams of the previous year, and comes the shofar and it says that these traces, these rishimus. These irreducible parts of yourself that cannot be killed away, there's only one thing that can awaken them, and that's the voice of the shofar. Now, anybody who wants to see the intricacies of Rav Huttner's teachings on this matter, so I I advise you to read my Merchaf. And parenthetically, again, there's no reason for me to say this other than sheer excitement, but Rav Huttner in my Merchaf is so deeply influenced by Rav Shlomo al-Yashav, the Leshem Chovev Achloima, who anybody who knows me knows is one of my tzaddikin, as well as the Ishbetzer tzaddikin, who anybody who knows me as well knows that I'm deeply influenced by them. Rav in this Mimer is allowing these two schools of thought to unite together. The Leshem in his Kabbalistic system and the Meshiloach in his psychological system both kiss each other when it comes to Maimer Chaf in Pachad Yitzhak on Rosh Hashanah. But what Refugner says is that the shofar comes and tells us that those traces, those Rishimus, those things which we thought were simply the absence of something, are in truth presence. That the fact that we are uncomfortable, come Rosh Hashanah, the fact that we feel that we haven't lived up to our dreams, come Rosh Hashanah, is the deepest experience of Rosh Hashanah. Because when we recognize that we have been incapable of living up to what we wanted to live up to, What we're saying is that, Hashem, I still want to live up to those promises. That yes, they've been broken. Yes, I haven't been capable of living up to them. But they still exist. They're not untrue. They weren't lies. What I expressed on Rosh Hashanah or Bani Ilan Yom Kippur is the deepest expression of who I am. The fact that I haven't been capable of accomplishing that, that's the reality of living in a world of Chol, of living in a world of Gullus, of living in a world of responsibility and anxiety and dealing with the difficulties and the vicissitudes of day-to-day life. Something that another Jew came to teach us about, Sigmund Freud, a deeply Jewish individual who came to say that no matter how well you feel you're doing in the world, there are an infinite amount of broken promises that upset you in your heart. That even though things should be okay, you still feel homesick. Something I heard from my rabbi of Moshe Weinberger, is that one of the archetypal marks of a Jewish person is that they feel homesick even when they're at home. Is that even when we're in the place that we hope to be in, we still are left feeling uncomfortable. Because we know that no matter how good things are, they can still be better. That no matter how much I have abided to my promises, there's still something left that I haven't lived up to. And Refutner comes and says that on Shofar, on Rosh Hashanah, those Rishimus, those traces are awakened. But the Shofar comes, this wordless call that emanates from the core of the self, that cries out when no words will accomplish what we're trying to say. The Shofar comes and says, that which you feel you have lost, that which you feel which is gone and non-significant, is still present that those Roshems, those traces, are irreducible. You can't get rid of them, no matter how hard you try. Rav has an amazing Taich on this. It's the Yechida, it's that Pintel Yid that exists no matter what we've done. The fact that the Ramnam could say that so that even though a person who gives a get needs to give it willingly, the Ramnam paskins that you could compel a person to give it in spite of the fact that they're unwilling. And the way Rav Tzadak HaKohen May Lablin S'chusik says this, is that the reason we can compel a person is because the compulsion discloses the true desire of an individual. And so that's a troubling teaching for a therapist. Because you can't compel someone to say something. Self-determination of the client is the underlying law of any therapeutic relationship. So this Rambam is difficult to deal with because, yeah, sure, you could compel someone to say anything, but what the Rambam is saying, and Rav has an amazing touch on this, he says, why is it that there's always a place in ourselves that is still willing to abide to the Ratzon Hashem, even though we don't want to? He says it's because it's not ours to begin with. It's like hektish. A person cannot defile something that has been sanctified for the Beis Mikdash because it is not theirs, it's Hashem's. I have no ownership over it. Rav says that there's a part of ourselves that is not ours. It's the Chaylak Mimal. It's the part of God within us. The one who breathes life into human beings breathes from within himself, Yachol. That there is an irreducible part in each and every one of us, very often the part that we're most vulnerable and uncomfortable with, which is the part of Hashem within us, which is what our job is to disclose in the world. And R. Futner says the reason you can force someone to admit to the will of God is because it's not their right to deny it. That there always exists a part within ourselves that wants to move closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Rav Cohen has one of the most amazing readings on this. There's a Gemara in the beginning of Parak the 12th Parak of, of Sanhedrin, which says that, Kol All of Israel has a, a, a role or a part, or a place, in the world to come. <coughs> that no matter what a Jew has done, no matter how far we've fallen from our promises, there's still a place for us. And then the Gemara begins to list certain individuals who don't have a place. Certain individuals who are not going to be zolchat Olam Haba. And then the Gemara has an amazing insight. The Gemara says, Aval ba'u, And they said that even those who have lost the Chelek in Olam Haba, they still have an olam haba. So Rav Tzadok immediately jumps on this. He says, who are these Dorshe Reshumos? Where do we find this group of people who are Doresh Reshumos, who seek out traces? And Rav Tzadok says as follows. Rav Tzadok says that the Dorshe Reshumos are those tzaddikim, those individuals, who are able to see beyond the actions of a person beyond the behaviors of a person, and recognize that there is always a Roshem within the person. There is always a trace of the promises that they made. That no matter what life has thrown at a person, no matter how far a person has moved beyond what they promised themselves, there is still a trace, there is still an indelible mark of what they desire. That the person still wants to move closer to Hashem. And specifically, these Dorshe Roshumos, those who are willing to seek out the trace, to seek out that remainder after everything else is gone, to seek out that hint of life after death has done what it's done, it's only those Dorshe Rashumos who are willing to find that even within those fallen Jews, even within our broken promises, there's still hope. There's still something to enter into Rosh Hashanah with. And I believe that this is the secret of Tshuva, the secret of tshuva is that hachzirenu That we ask Hashem not to create something new for ourselves, but to return us to something old. That when we try and embark on a path of being just a little bit better, and each and every one of us knows what that means <coughs> in our own heart of hearts, what it means to be a little bit better, just a little bit better to validate the entire process of our existence, Sometimes we need to seek out the trace. Sometimes we need to enter into those spaces where we feel we have failed entirely, and to realize that the fact that I'm bothered, that I haven't been able to live up to my dreams, is enough of a proof that I still want them. And I'm going to read a teaching from Rav Cook right now. Rav Av Mitzchah HaKohen Cook, S'chus the Rebbe of Rav Huttner, the student of the Leshem of HaHaloma, Someone who claimed that I am the soul of Rabbi Nachman. Rufkuk says as follows in the, HaTshuva, in the sixth chapter of Rufkuk, in the fifth point, how does Tshuva work? How is Tshuva possible? How does the failures of our past still allow us to deal with the failures of our past? And Rufkuk says as follows He says, Hahavaya existence, being. What that means for each and every one of us is our lives in their entirety. With ourselves, with our families, with our relationships. The deep, willful desire, our free choice, that which we decided to engage in in this world. Don't look at it as separate points in our lives, as if what happened in the past has no relationship what is happening in the present or in the future. But rather a person needs to look at their lives as if it is one great chain of being. Rufkuk took this directly from the Maharal of Prague in his Oros Hachuva. And Rufkuk continues and he says, there can be no separation no absolute separation from what a person wanted to do and what a person is doing. That the fact that things are in the past does not mean that they're gone. It just means that we're connected to them in a different way. Chayfetz ha'adam kashur says. The desire of the individual, the psychology of the individual, the thoughts of the individual are deeply connected to our past actions. Gam ha'ma'asim shal ha'avar. Even the actions of the past. They are never disconnected from the actions of the individual and their source. Rav Kook is saying something that would take a thousand years to describe, but Rav Kook had a unique way of giving it to us in a way that we can swallow it. Rav Kook is saying that even though things have passed, even though we've lost, even though our dreams and our hopes are gone, we are still connected to those failures. We are still connected to those lost dreams. And because, like we said in the name of Rav and the name of Rabbi Nachman, that there is nothing that is ever fully separated from an individual. That there is, within the desire of a person, a capacity, a miraculous capacity of tshuva, that allows a person to implant their will that is present on past actions. That when I am willing to recognize that there is still a trace within me of the actions and the failures that I've engaged in in the past, when I'm willing to realize that those are still living and beating within my heart, I can take my ruts on, I can take my desire and retroactively apply it to the actions that I failed in and say that I want to change the reality of those actions. Like Rav Sadov says, the fact that I feel bad about my failure is more than enough of a proof that I want to be better. That's the Roshim, that's the irreducible trace that murmurs within our hearts, that leaves us uneasy, that leaves us homesick even when we're at home, that tells us that in spite of the fact that I've lost hope, there is still a hope that abides within me that I can never get rid of. And Rav Kook continues and he says, And this is the secret of Tshuva, the secret of chuva is that my mind can look back in the past and realize that I'm never disconnected from my past actions. I'm never disconnected. I always have an ability to reach back into my past failures and say that the fact that I'm still bothered by my past failures is enough of a proof that I'm still connected. Now, I want to end with two makoros. I don't even know what time it is. It could be that this was only half a year or more than 30. double a year. 42 42, okay, so I have a few more minutes First and foremost, I want to read a Zohar Kadosh. Thank you And 37 seconds The Zohar Kadosh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the neshama of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Who wrote the Zohar Akadosh, Says something incredible This is going to be in a section of the Zohar Akadosh Called Sabah de Mishpatem Now, I will be remiss not to introduce why this is called Sabah de Mishpatem Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yossi Two of the main disciples of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Zohar Akadosh, the Chavraya of Rashbi, Sadiqim who we can never reach, ideas which we can never reach. Rabbi Chi and Rabbi Yossi wake up in the middle of the night bothered. And it's very important that when a person learns the Zohar, the first emotion that enters a person into the Zohar Akadosh is being bothered. If a person wants to know when is the time to read Panimiya Satorah, when is the time to start learning Chasidis or the Vilnagon, it's when you're bothered. Living in St. Louis, I have a Chabad rabbi who came to me and he said, how do we get these people, how do we get the litvaks at the young Israel, you know, whatever, and uh, how do we get them to learn Hasidus? So what I first said is that we have to realize the war is over. Hasidim have won. There's more Gartels in the mirror than there are not. So, you know, the Balshemtov and the Vilnagon are already ha- Chavraya. But people need to suffer in order to seek out pinimia a person whose life goes nicely, beautifully all the time has no need to be ma'amik, has no need to deepen their understanding of the Torah. Which is why omek, the gematria of depth, or the willingness to descend into the interiority of things, something beyond the external vision, is the same numerical value as gevura, as severity. The only a person who feels severe in their lives, in whatever particular moment they find themselves in, is willing to descend into the depths of their lives. If everything is going benachas, there's no need for me to look deeper, and everything is okay on the external. So these two chavrai rochiah Rab Yosi get together, and they wake up in the middle of the night, bothered, and they travel in the nighttime. The Zohar is a book of the nighttime. There's no daylight in the Zohar. Everything about the Zohar is wandering in that nocturnal space where things are not present, where things are confused. And they meet each other and they say, that, Rav Chiyah says to Rav Yossi, he says, it's really great that I met you because there's this beggar that's been following me on my entire journey and he's bugging me out. He's really bothering me. And Rav Yossi's like, remember what book we're in. We're in the Zohar, so beggars and strangers usually carry secrets. And in the Zohar, it's something incredible. The beggars and the broken people of the world, they carry the deepest secrets. And Rav Chiyah's like, who's this person who's bothering you? And it's some taya, some donkey rider who's been bothering me, asking me strange questions about a snake that has an ant in its mouth and a of, about a tree that is not a tree and about a blind princess who has no eyes. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev almost built his entire sefer of Lukut Maran on this part of Shavda Zohar. And so they begin discussing and they begin talking and they say, you know what? It might be worthwhile to listen to this guy's secrets. And they start listening and they're taken to another place. And at the end of this Zohar, at the end of Saba de Mishpatim, one of the most sacred parts of the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai gives us a teaching which classifies and codifies and culminates and concretizes the entire idea that we've been trying to discuss. The fact that in spite of the fact that we've lost our dreams, our dreams still exist by way of negativity. That the feeling that we have about not living up to our ideals is what drives us to our ideal. And the Zohar Kadosh on Dav Kufyut and in Aleph says as follows. And again, I'm going to read this because to read the words of the Zohar Kadosh is, is a holy endeavor. This Chavraya, Rabbi Yossi and Rabchiya, woke up as if they were waking up out of a sleep. Now, Rafutner uses this language of waking up out of sleep as the idea of the Rosh, and Rosh Hashanah. Because when you look at the Rambam Salachos of Shofar, the shofar comes to wake up people who have fallen asleep. The Zohar is coming to awaken us out of the slumber we've fallen into because of forgetfulness. So Kamu inen isar mishinase. These individuals woke up as if they were waking up out of a sleep. And they bowed in front of this homeless beggar. And they were not able to speak. Each person knows in their own heart what it means to not be able to speak when we're confronted with the most vulnerable part of ourselves, when we feel that the dreams and the promises that we made for ourselves are not going to culminate, that's when we can no longer speak. L'batsar <laughs> shaisa After an hour they cried. The Zohar is a textbook of emotions. It's incredible. They were silent and then they cried after waking up out of their sleep. Pasach rabichia. Rabichia opened like we started off. Ushi opened up so we can open up. Place me as a stamp upon your heart, like a stamp upon your arm. And this is Knesset Yisrael, this is each and every one of us talking to Hashem. When we make those promises, we say to Hashem, Hashem, promise me that you'll keep me as a stamp upon your heart. Promise me that you'll keep me as a stamp upon your arm. And the Zohar continues and it says, Place me like a stamp. In times when when the Jewish people are connected to their God, to their Creator, ihi amra We're still saying to God, God, I know I'm going to lose this relationship, so please remember me when this relationship is done. A deeply Jewish sense of anxiety that we can never truly enjoy what we have because we're always abundantly aware of the fact that it's going to lose itself. Sameini Ihi Ammart Samenik Chhoisem, Knessis Shal, each and every one of us says, place me as a stamp upon your heart. Orchad de Khosem, the way of the stamp, Kivan de Istavik Bahahu Asar-Istavik, because it attached itself, it stamped itself upon the place that it was stamped. Shavik bay koldiyukna, it has left the entirety of its stamp even though that stamp in the future is going to wander here and there away from what we promised. What Knesset Yisrael is saying to Hashem is that hold me as if I am deeply connected to you even though that I know I am going to lose sight of you. Believe in me even though I know I will fail. Trust in the Roshem, trust in that irreducible trace that exists no matter what, even though I have lost my path. And there are times where it's not going to be present. There are times where my promises will not have to be kept. And there are times where I'm going to feel as an utter failure in your eyes and in my own eyes. Promise me that it will still be as if my entire stamp is there. Even when I'm failing, even when I'm gone, the promises that I've made have not lost their presence. kaima, And they will still exist there. Of Imrat so too the Jewish people, each and every one of us in our own hearts says, is Kanabach, because I've connected to you. My entire existence is imprinted upon you. The Afagav de Azil Hacha even though I'll go there and there, or here and there, or wandering around throughout the year where I lose hope in my promises. You will find my trace indelibly imprinted on you even though I'm not there. Believe in the Roshem, believe in the trace of my promises. What I want to end with tonight, and it took me a little bit of deliberation to end with this, but because it speaks so directly to what I want to end with, I'm going to say it. We're going to read the teachings of another Jew. Now this Jew is not somebody who identified with his Judaism. But in spite of all of that, what we're saying is that he was still as much of a Jew as anyone else. We're going to read something from Marcel Proust. Marcel Proust in his Remembrance of Things Past, a remarkable seven-volume novel that discusses the intricacies of memory. Now, little did I know, and I just said this with my friend before, Marcel Proust was best friends with another Jew who didn't understand his Judaism, someone named Henry Bergson. Henry Bergson goes down in history as the philosopher of memory. The ability to remember things that are gone. The, the ability to return back to a trace. And we're going to see how Proust explains this experience in a profound way. Now this is known as the episode of the Madeline. Madeleine Madeline cookie. The only reason I know what Madeline cookies are is because at Starbucks they have delicious ones. So if you ask for a Madeline cookie, they ask you if you want it chocolate dipped or plain. And sometimes you have this pumpkin spice flavor as well. But, but, so the episode of the Madeline, and Proust writes as follows. She sent me for one of those squat, plump little cakes called Petite madeleines, which look as though they had been shaped and molded in the fluted valve of a scallop shell. And soon, mechanically, please listen to these words, dispirited after a dreary day, with the prospect of a depressing morrow, I raised to my lips a spoonful of tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid mixed with the crumbs touched by my palate than a shudder ran through me and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to me. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, something isolated, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory, this new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence, or rather this essence was not in me but it was me. Again, this essence was not in me, but it was me. This trace of memory that exists within us, even though the memory is gone, is not something we remember, but it's indelibly marked within our neshamos. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, contingent, or mortal. Whence could it have come to me, this all-powerful joy? I sensed that it was connected with the taste of the tea and the cake, but that it was infinitely transcendent to those saviors could no indeed be no part of the same nature. Whence did it come? Where is this feeling from? What did it mean? How could I seize and apprehend it? And Proust continues, It is plain that the truth I am seeking lies not in the cup of tea but in myself. The drink has called it into being, but does not know it, and it can only repeat it indefinitely with a progressive diminution of strength. The same message what I cannot interpret, Though I hope at least to be able to call it forth again and to find it. There, presently intact and at my disposal for my final enlightenment. I put down the cup and I examine my own mind. It alone can discover the truth. But how? What an abyss of uncertainty, wherever the mind feels overtaken by itself. When it, the seeker, is at the same time the dark region through which it must go seeking and where all its equipment will avail to nothing. It would take me a year to explain how powerful these words are. I'll just repeat the sentence. With a progressive diminution of strength, the same message which I cannot interpret, though I hope at least will be able to call forth again. I put down the cup and I examine my own mind. It alone can discover the truth. What an abyss of uncertainty whenever my mind feels overtaken by itself. When it, the seeker, is at the same time the dark region through which it must go seeking and where all of its equipment will avail to nothing. Seek? More than that, create. It is face to face with something which does not yet exist, to which it alone can give reality and substance, which it alone can bring into the light of day. What Proust is saying is what Rav Sadok and Rav Nachman and Rav Kook are trying to explain to us and what the Zohar is coming to say that there remains indelibly marked within each and every one of us a remembrance of the desires that we had on Rosh Hashanah of last year and the of Yom Kippur. But because of the vicissitudes of being human and the failures of ourselves in the year and the difficulties of being human, we've lost entire sight of it. But there comes a time where these rishimus, these traces, are awoken again, where we remember that which we've forgotten, Yom hasikarim a day of remembrance, when the chauffeur, like Rafutner says, comes to awaken those traces of memory which have fallen into forgetfulness. This unremembered state, says Proust, which brought with it no logical proof but the indisputable evidence of its felicity. It exists. I have no idea how it exists or why it exists, but it exists. Its reality and in whose presence other states of consciousness melted and visioned. I retrace my thoughts to the moment at which the drink of my first potential spoonful of tea happened. Bruce is now trying to find out why I was awoken to this. And he says as follows. And suddenly the memory revealed itself. Suddenly the shofar comes out. Suddenly it's Yom Hazikaron. Suddenly that which has been forgotten is brought back into memory. And Hashem admits to us and he says, you're right. The failures of the past year are not failures, they're just forgotten. They're still present, marked within your neshama. And all we have to do is recreate them, to return to them. We don't have to create a new world, we have to return to that which is lost. Perhaps because of those memories, so long abandoned and put out of my mind, nothing now survived. Everything was scattered. The shapes and folds were either obliterated or have been so long dormant that to have lost their power of expansion, which would have allowed them to resume their place in my consciousness. But when from a long distance past, Nothing subsists. After the people are dead, like the Vilna Gaon taught us, that we're already dead, that we as the Jewish people are that which lives beyond death, lives beyond our failed memories. After the things are broken and scattered, taste and smell alone, more fragile but more enduring, more unsubstantial but more persistent, more faithful remain, paused a long time like souls, remembering, waiting, hoping amid the ruins of all the rest, and bear unflinchingly in the tiny, almost impalpable drop of their essence, the vast structure of recollection. That Yom Hazikaron means that we are capable of remembering that which has been forgotten. Memory doesn't mean creating something that is gone, but it means recalling something that is still present within ourselves. In Musaf and Rosh Hashanah we say, Haben Yakir Yaker li afrayim. Imu <yaled> sha'ashuim Zachar <es kerenu'od> Ephraim was the worst <laughs> Whatever we want to imagine about our most difficult children Our most difficult partners The most difficult things we encounter in this world That's what Ephraim represents in Sifrei Chasidus mm-hmm. So the Pesach says <laughs> Is Ephraim really my most beloved son? Do I love Ephraim? I don't love Ephraim, I hate him. he bothers me, he makes life difficult. But the Pasuk continues and it says, When I allow for those memories of painful children, of painful desires and lost hope, to play around within me, to begin to burgeon within me, I begin to remember in a slightly different way. And I begin to love him again. I begin to believe in those lost memories. And I come to love those parts of myself that I feel have been failures all along. So the machshava that we should leave with, if anyone's listening to what I'm saying, is that comes Elul and Rosh Hashanah, it's not so much about looking towards the future, but it's about reaching into the past and saying that the past failures of my life are still parts of me. And the fact that I'm still bothered and kept awake at night by my false promises is enough of a proof that I'm still connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh is Zohar Kolhanishkachos, He who remembers all that has been forgotten. Forgotten love, forgotten belief. It's our job, come Rosh Hashanah, comes Elul, to believe in those parts of ourselves that we've forgotten in. And to realize that even though we feel that we failed, we haven't failed. And that there still abides within us in a reducible trace, a Rishimu, of Hashem's presence in our lives, and more importantly for us nowadays, our belief in ourselves. Uh, This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Sheffa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page, and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.